Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I've mentioned villains in fiction in a prior episode. Let's return to this important subject and expand on it. Most novels feature a villain. Maybe not someone as obviously as villainous as Hannibal Lecter or Sauron, but somebody who actively opposes the hero, who puts obstacles in the hero's path. Almost all popular fiction is about a protagonist who wants something he or she can't have. And the story is about the struggle to get it. She wants love, wealth, revenge, safety, redemption, freedom. Someone or something is placing obstacles in her path, and that is usually the story's villain. Successful villains in literature usually have two traits. They are formidable and they are understandable. Formidable means here that the hero should have a difficult time with the villain. Things shouldn't be easy for the hero. Understandable doesn't necessarily mean the reader's sympathy uh, sympathizes with the villain, but rather that the villain's motivations are made clear to the reader. The reader should learn what drives the villain. And here's another element for a villain. He should be memorably described. The writer should paint a vivid, maybe an unforgettable portrait of the villain. How can we do this? One of the best ways to learn writing techniques is to read the masters. Let's see how good writers describe their villains. We'll see how they do it memorably. And another thing, I'm inspired. I'm inspired when I read good writing. Maybe you are too. So here's some good writing on villains, on the villains' physical descriptions. Here is Stephen King in his novel, Christine. Will Darnell was a great, fat pig of a man who drank a lot and smoked long, rank cigars, although he was reputed to have a bad asthmatic condition. He professed to hate almost every car-owning teenager in Libertyville, but that didn't keep him from catering to them and rooking them. Here's uh, J.K. Rowling's description of the awful Dudley Dursley in the first Harry Potter novel. The Dursleys had a small son called Dudley, and in their opinion there was no finer boy anywhere. He had a large pink face, not much neck, small watery blue eyes and thick blonde hair that lay smoothly on his thick, fat head. Aunt Petunia often said that Dudley looked like a baby angel. Harry often thought that Dudley looked like a pig in a wig. And here is J.K. Rowling again in her description of Voldemort. Where there should have been a back to Quirrell's head, there was a face, the most terrible face Harry had ever seen. It was chalk-white with glaring red eyes and slits for nostrils like a snake. Harry Potter, it whispered. 
Here's from Stephen King. Stephen King again in his novel It. The, he, he is describing a clown called Bob Gray and sometimes Pennywise the dancing clown. The face of the clown in the storm drain was white. There were funny tufts of red hair on either side of his bald head, and there was a big clown smile painted over his mouth. The clown held a bunch of balloons, all colors, like gorgeous ripe fruit in one hand. In the other, he held George's newspaper boat. That's Stephen King. And here is some some of the most famous sentences in literature. This is from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, his wonderful description of Scrooge. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, <laughs> scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose and shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice, a frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. Boy, that's wonderful writing. Here is uh, Neil Gaiman in his novel Neverwhere, where he describes the dastardly villain's Croup and Vandemar. There are four simple ways for the observant to tell Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar apart. First, Mr. Vandemar is two and a half heads taller than Mr. Croup. Second, Mr. Croup has eyes of a faded china blue, while Mr. Vandemar's eyes are brown. Third, while Mr. Vandemar fashioned the rings he wears on his right hand out of the skulls of four ravens, Mr. Croup has no obvious jewelry. Fourth, Mr. Croup likes words, while Mr. Vandemar is always hungry. Also, they look nothing at all alike. Here is uh, Mark Twain's description of Huckleberry's, uh, Huckleberry Finn's father, Pap. He was most fifty, and he looked it. His hair was long and tangled and greasy and hung down, and you could see his eyes shining through like he was behind vines. It was all black, no gray, so was his long, mixed-up whiskers. There weren't no color in his face, where his face showed. It was white, not like another man's white, but a, but a white to make a body sick a white to make a body's flesh crawl, a tree-toed white, a fish-belly white. As for his clothes, just rags, that was all. He had one ankle resting on the other knee. The boot on that foot was busted, and two of his toes stuck out, uh, stuck through, and he worked them now and then. His hat was laying on the floor, an old black slouch with the top cave in, caved in like a lid. And here is the description of Nurse Ratched 
from Ken Casey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She nods once to each patient. Precise, automatic gesture. Her face is smooth, calculated, and precision-made like an expensive baby doll, skin like flesh-colored enamel, blend of white and cream and baby blue eyes, small nose, pink little nostrils, everything working together except the color on her lips and fingernails and the size of her bosom. A mistake was made somehow in manufacturing, putting those big womanly breasts on what would have otherwise been a perfect work, and you can see how bitter she is about it. Here is Charles Dickens again in his novel David Copperfield describing one of literature's great villains, Uriah Heep. I saw a cadaverous face appear at a small window on the ground floor and quickly disappear. The low-arched door then opened and the face came out. It was quite as cadaverous as it had looked in the window, though in the grain of it there was that tinge of red which is sometimes to be observed in the skins of red-haired people. It belonged to a red-haired person, a youth of fifteen, as I take it now, but looking much older, whose hair was cropped as close as the closest stubble who had hardly any eyebrows and no eyelashes and eyes of red-brown, so unsheltered and unshaded that I remember wondering how he went to sleep. He was high-shouldered and bony, dressed in decent black, with a white wisp of neckcloth, buttoned up to the throat, and had a long, lank, skeleton hand, which particularly attracted my attention. That's Charles Dickens's description of Uriah Heep. These are powerful descriptions of villains. Part of the reasons these masters of fiction became masters is because of their ability to describe their characters, including the villains. I read these wonderful descriptions and uh, and am inspired, and I want to get back to work on my descriptions. I hope you feel the same way. Let's mention getting unstuck. What if we haven't begun writing our story because we haven't got something in the plot figured out? Or what if we are a third or a half done with the writing of it and have stopped because the plot hasn't come to us? We're stuck. What can we do to get unstuck, to get us going with the writing? A recent Wall Street Journal article talked about how to do so. The article's title is Anatomy of a Breakthrough, Expect Delays. And the subheading is We All Encounter Creative Blocks. We make strides on a project, whether it's mastering a sport or building a company, and then we don't. The article is by Belinda Lanks, and it's uh, it's interesting for us writers. She writes, After the debut of his 1952 novel Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison spent 42 years writing a follow-up, only to leave it unfinished when he died in 1994. Truman Capote, by the time of his death in 1984, was still working on his self-hyped novel, Answered Prayers, decades after publishing his 1965 masterpiece, In Cold Blood. Creative blocks aren't exclusive to famous authors, or even to people we think of as being creative. We all get stuck. 
We make strides on a project, whether it's mastering a sport, changing careers, or building a company, and then we just don't. Belinda Lanks continues in the Wall Street Journal, Blocks are common, but how we respond to them varies wildly. Some give up in frustration or despair. Others stubbornly hew to habits that no longer work. Still others get caught up in a vicious web of perfectionism. Adam Alter wants to rescue us from those unproductive impulses. In Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most, the New York University marketing professor draws on research studies anecdotes, and interviews to reveal the self-imposed barriers that thwart our progress and the actions we can take to surmount them. The first step, according to Mr. Alter, is to reframe our perception of failure. Bombarded by success stories, we often overlook the struggles and obstacles that came before them. The truth is that we all encounter roadblocks. Thomas Edison famously tried out more than 1,600 filament materials uh, for his light bulb before finding the right one. We're better served, Mr. Alter tells us, by recasting a failure as, quote, a feature rather than a bug on the path to success, end quote. Another mistake is underestimating how thorny and lengthy the creative process can be. At the first sign of difficulty, we might doubt our ability to overcome it. We value persistence in others, but question whether it will help us dig out of our own mud. But few ideas arrive fully formed and viable. They can take years to bear fruit, while we're quick to judge our first ideas as our adequate best, we're inclined to get more, not less, creative. Psychologists call this creative cliff, uh, call this the creative cliff illusion, the mistaken belief that our creative output declines over time when in fact our first ideas tend to be the easiest, most accessible ones. Mr. Alter suggests going through three rounds of brainstorming to arrive at a truly novel idea, which isn't to say that radical originality is always the goal. Breakthroughs can happen by combining two or more existing ideas or incrementally improving upon what came before them. Google, Mr. Alter points out, learned from the mistakes of 21 earlier search engines, including now quaint-sounding products like AltaVista, Lycos, and Ask Jeeves. Mr. Alter offers some concrete strategies for getting unstuck and moving forward. Experiencing a midpoint slump? Break up your project into smaller, discrete goals, rewarding yourself for the completion of each. Paralyzed by perfectionism, strive for excellence instead. The best unstickers, Mr. Alter says, are the people who are open to trying new techniques, pivoting when necessary, and constantly punching in. As the painter Chuck Close once said, quote, Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work, end quote. That's the article in the Wall Street Journal by Melinda Lanks. Uh, Belinda Lanks. I really like the, the two main suggestions in this article. That can apply to us writers who may be stuck. First, 
being stuck isn't a failure. Everyone gets stuck. It's just part of the process. And second, instead of striving for perfection, which is so daunting that it may prevent us from moving forward, strive for excellence instead. Excellence is much more easily attained than perfection. And excellence is enough. I read a terrific article by Nancy Cress, the Hugo, Hugo Award-winning science fiction writer, where she is talking about Robert Heinlein's three basic plots. Uh, Heinlein is, con- is considered to be one of uh, literature's most sophisticated sci-fi writers. He graduated from the uh, U.S. Naval Academy and served in the Navy for five years, and then he studied physics and math at UCLA. His first story, Lifeline, was published in the pulp magazine Astounding Science Fiction. Uh, Lifeline is about a man who builds a machine that will predict how long a person will live. It does so by sending a signal along the world line of a person and detecting the echo from the far end. Uh, Heinlein's first book, The Rocket Ship Galileo, was published in 1947. It was was followed by a large number of novels and short stories. He is best known for the wonderful novel Stranger in a Strange Land, which was published in 1961. Nancy Kress said Heinlein was convinced there are only three basic plots for fiction. All three of them revolve around character changes. Heinlein named each plot according to what prompts the change. The first plot is Boy Meets Girl. This is where the protagonist changes as a result of his interaction with another human being. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a love interest. It could be a a child, a, a mentor, a villain, or a friend. An example of this is The Great Gatsby, uh, where the narrator Nick Carraway's life is altered by having known Jay Gatsby. Uh, Robert Heinlein's second plot is called The Little Tailor, where a character, character changes as a result of facing some great challenge. The Brave Little Tailor is a Brothers Grimm fairy tale where a tailor meets a giant and the giant challenges him to various duels of strength. The giant squeezes water from a stone and so the little tailor squeezes pieces of cheese that are in his pocket, producing fluid and so forth. In response to this challenge, he discovers that he has capabilities he didn't know he possessed and he uses them uh, in triumph. An example of this is the plot in John Grisham's novel, The Firm. Mitch McDear discovers he's able to outwit the mob, the FBI, and the banking system, and retires rich and anonymous on a Caribbean island. The third Robert Heinlein plot of the three he says exists in fiction is Man Learns Better. Here the protagonist does something or sees something done that leaves him sadder but wiser. He loses, but he learns something about how the world works. In Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, for example, 
characters and readers both learn that it's not a good idea to play God and recreate vanished species. In Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, the protagonist learns that not even a lifetime of atonement may be enough to balance a moment of selfish cowardice. This is uh, Nancy Cress's discussion of Robert Heinlein's three basic plots. Maybe there's something useful for us in it. Maybe they can open up stories, ideas, story ideas for us. I'd like to talk about a topic that I call Keep It Coming. I spoke earlier in this episode about getting stuck. Uh, one of the reasons I sometimes get stuck is that I haven't done enough work of creating. I haven't figured out enough plot. Mostly this involves inventing obstacles to put in front of the hero. Uh, maybe you've found uh, trouble this way too. I certainly do. I'm reminded of, of how it's done correctly, uh, which is invent more obstacles, by reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first Harry Potter novel by J.K. Rowling. In the UK, it was titled Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. There are many reasons the novel is so good, among them charming characters and settings out in, and the lovely writing. But a main reason the novel is so entertaining is that the author just keeps things coming. She never gives poor Harry uh, a rest. Look at the first part of the novel, just the first part. We meet Harry, uh, an orphan who lives with the dreadful Dursley family. Then we see letters magically arriving at the Dursley home. Then we meet the wonderful giant Hagrid. Uh, then we visit the magic street called Diagon Alley for shopping. Uh, then we board the train, the Hogwarts Express, and we meet Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger. And we see the ancient and the eerie Hogwarts school, the building which is described uh, we meet a magical hat that sorts Harry into Gryffindor House. We see formidable wizards such as Professor Minerva McGonagall and Sir Severus Snape. We learn, and this is wonderful, that the stairs go up to a certain point one day and perhaps another point the next day. Uh, we meet a huge and fierce three-headed dog named Fluffy who appears to be guarding something. And that's not enough, so we then meet a 12-foot-high 12 12 troll with a tiny head and a big club. Harry's given a state-of-the-art broomstick called a, num a Nimbus 2000, and he learns the game of Quidditch. Uh, J.K. Rowling knows this technique that's so important. Keep the plot coming. Stick things in there, obstacles that your heroine must overcome one after another. Uh, one after another. That'll keep the reader's head down reading the book. The pleasures that fiction offers us readers are, are many. The story, the characters, the settings, powerful writing, all told, being taken to a new place to meet new people. Don't we just love doing that? Here's another pleasure. 
the pleasure of coming across a powerful and semi-obscure word. This past week, I, I must have the soul of an accountant because I made a list of seven words that aren't too common and are powerful, and they made me pause a beat just to enjoy them as I was reading along. Here are those seven words. Hapless, rake hell. You ever heard the word rake hell? It means a dissolute man in fashionable society. Shambolic, cacophony, serendipity, isn't that a beautiful word? Amuck, as in he ran amuck, and feckless, another wonderful word. We've come to the end of this podcast. I'm sure glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.